Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me in conversations with fearless leaders from around the world. We are going to discuss the mechanics of high performance, success, and failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversation ahead, I hope to challenge, inform, and even inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance and to go further faster. And that conversation starts right now. Dr. Ethan Cross steps into my office this week. Ethan is an experimental psychologist, a neuroscientist, and one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He's an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan, where he is the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He's also the author of the new book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head and How to Harness It. Ethan, welcome to my office. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here. I am thrilled to have you on today. And obviously with all that's going on in the world right now, I think so many people are really dealing with uncertainty and a lot of anxiety, uh, the feeling that things are spinning out of control. And with so much nonstop, I think, information overload, and right now clearly some of that noise is, is not just external, but it's also that internal dialogue, uh, the racket or the noise in our head, or what you call chatter. So you study the conversations that people have with themselves uh, about that even impact their health, their performance, their um, decision-making capabilities, right? In the day in to day out, which clearly ultimately then ends up impacting your relationships. How did you initially gravitate to not only psychology, which is near and dear to my heart as a psychology and social work graduate from the University of Wisconsin, um, but specifically this subject of emotion regulation in particular. So I've been studying the voice in our head and how to manage it for about 20 years, but I've been thinking about it for close to 40. My interests really go back to when I was a little kid and I had this unconventional dad who archetype of the classic New Yorker big bushy mustache, lots of like chain smoker, watch the Yankees, cursed everyone out on the road. But when he wasn't doing that, he was meditating, usually while he smoked, and, and talking to me as a little kid about Eastern philosophy and emotions and how to manage them. One of the first lessons I remember him teaching me was when you're struggling with something, turn your attention inward, tap into that inner voice, find the, the you know, he'd call it the kernel of truth. It was very dramatic. And basically, like, go inside, introspect, come up with a solution for how to manage the situation and move on. And, you know, when I was a kid, three, five, seven, I listened to what my dad told me. I didn't really question it. And his advice really served me well. As I was growing up, I get into arguments with friends or my mom or my dad. I'd, I'd go inside and come up with a solution. I'd, you know, okay, here's what you do. And I wouldn't really get stuck. And then I, you know, went to high school and... I'd ask a girl out on a date and she'd say no. And I'd think about it. All right, well, this is, and I'd move on and ask another girl. out. I wouldn't get stuck. And so this was a skill that really served me well. And then when I got to college, I took my first psych class in uh, the second semester of my freshman year. And about halfway through the semester, we got to this topic that my dad and I had spent so much time talking about, which was technically called introspection. So what happens when you turn your attention inward? to make sense of your problems and, and what happens when you use language to do that, right? Like the, the inner voice in, in, in technical terms, it's about silently using language as a tool to manage your problems. And so when we got to that topic, what I learned is a lot of people, a lot of the time really benefited from this capacity, right? Being able to turn your attention where this is what lets us solve problems, work through the past, plan for the future. But Sometimes, particular high-stress situations that are filled with negative emotions, when we try to turn our attention over to make sense of our circumstances, it often backfires. It leads us to worry and ruminate and become mired in, in paralyzing distress. And so I found this to be a giant puzzle. Why is it that sometimes when we turn our attention over, we could capitalize on this tool, it serves us so well, but other times it gets us into such trouble and so I went to graduate school to figure out how to use science to figure out why that happens, why we sometimes stumble, and importantly, to also figure out how to use science to identify tools 
to help people manage their chatter. And, and that's what I've been doing for the past 20 years. Well, I think that's fascinating in that did your dad know right out of the gate that was it through the meditation? Did he, did, was he, was he intentionally giving you a, a skill and a tool set that you didn't realize that I think if nothing else, it's become pretty clear that a lot of people, my generation, the generations coming up right now, I don't think are actually being equipped with those tools or those skills. Was he doing that intentionally? Yeah, very much so. Um, mm -hmm. um, you know, he very much viewed, you know, meditation as it emerged from Eastern philosophy as a tool that was useful for helping people and myself manage the ups and downs of life. And I remember when I was, when I was five years old, I was really excited about the prospect of getting like a new bicycle. But instead of a new bicycle, we like after school, he's like, I was surprised, I'm going to take you to get your gift. And we went into Manhattan. We were living in Brooklyn at the time. And, you know, we didn't stroll up to Toys R Us. Instead, we, we rolled up to the, the Transcendental Meditation Center in New York City. And I'm like, what's going on here? And, you know, and I, and I had an handkerchief and a, an orange to do the ritual to learn a mantra. And so what I've learned is I really value that my dad talked to me about all of these kinds of ideas from a young age and exposed me to these traditions. And some of the practices that these traditions have given to us have proven the test of time. But what we've also learned is that science over the past 20 or so years has really gotten good at giving us really precision level tools, right, for managing our chatter. There's a whole lot more beyond meditation that exists that can be useful. And and I share your your observation that we don't necessarily teach kids or even adults about these tools in a systematic way. And I think given given what's at stake when we're talking about chatter, impaired decision-making and performance, poor relationships and poor health, I can't think of a more important thing to talk to folks about. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the things that I appreciate even in your research and the lab and the way that you've presented this information in your new book, in Chatter, is hopefully whatever your background is, whatever your experience, whatever even, you know, dare I say your political affiliation is right now, is that it's a hopeful, it's a hopeful and helpful skill set that's data-based, it's research-based, and it's shared in a way which I think is is relatable through story and the examples that you give, even with professional athletes, as well as um, really high-ranking uh, national security advisor, people choosing that path. And I know we're going to hopscotch around or skip around a little bit here, more my fault than your fault on that, because I'm, I am really excited about this topic. But I wonder even if, you know, I look at how your dad started presenting this, this skill set to you that how you see it now through the way that we are current day consuming information, how we are consuming it through really short snippets and sound bites and opinion pieces instead of researching, reflecting, even reading and asking, ask, being curious, right? Not defensive, but just curious as, you know, hey, what's the bias of the writer or what's in it for them? And that whether it's a mantra where some people might think, oh, transcendental meditation, that's woo-woo, we're going to smudge pot and hold a crystal hot rock in our hand, or that we're losing the capability because we're consuming information in sound bites and not reading and reflecting, that we're now using losing the ability to explain or express our emotions in a different and more effective way if that loss of word choice and ability isn't concurrently supporting a foundation of rage right now. Yeah. What I'm hearing from this question is in part like all this time that we spend online and, and really on social media and on, and on news sites, what is that doing to us? And I think on the whole, it's not doing a whole lot of good. Um, that's not to say that there's anything that is inherently toxic about social media mm -hmm. and the news. Social media, I, I, we've actually in my lab been doing research on social media's impact on well-being for over 10 years now. We started doing this work when it started. And on the whole, we've documented negative effects of how consuming or interacting with social media impacts the way we feel. You know, you, one example of how it can negatively affect us, you go into 
Facebook or, 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 or Instagram and you see these curated presentations of people's lives, like mm -hmm. all the good stuff. And you're aware of all the not so good stuff in your own life. You feel envious. That doesn't make you feel good. We also know that there are these echo chambers that we see bubbling up on, on, on news sites and social media where we, we vent our feelings and then other people vent back and we just get worked up. And I talk a little bit about some of this in the book. I think for me, if I want to, if I step back and I think about this space and how it impacts our emotional life, and I think also about chatter and these different tools that, that I talk about in the book, um, I think there's an opportunity for us to all be a lot more deliberate about how we approach life, how we approach these technologies. I think a lot of us um, kind of just stumble through our experience in the world. We just randomly kind of like check the news sites and we get kind of lull down a little thread that may make us feel not so great. Or we may experience a hardship in our life and just kind of not really know what to do about it. And so we try different things out and some work, some tools work, some tools don't. Some conversations we have with other people make us feel better, some don't. But the value of the science is, is that science really gives us a roadmap, right? Because through all of these experiments in which scientists have tested, hey, thinking this way or that way, or doing this or that, or interacting with this person or that person, or this technology or that, can lead to these systematic positive or negative effects. Once you have that roadmap, it becomes a lot easier to, to deliberately choose what path you take. So, you know, by way of analogy, like, let's say you're walking, I grew up in, in and we were talking before we started recording, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and, you know, it was like a rough neighborhood. And there are lots of ways you could get to school. And if you took the wrong path and spoke to the wrong people along the way, you could come back with like a black eye or some other, you know, lost clothing, pieces of clothing, right? If you walk a different way, good stuff happens. Like, so you, you get the map and then you know how to be deliberate about how you get to where you want to be. And I think we would all be better off if we had a map for getting us to where we want to be emotionally and from a performance point of view in our lives. And we've got maps. They're not perfect. They're not perfect because science is always evolving and the mind is, you know, I think the most complex machine out there that we know of. We're still trying to figure out how it works, but, but we're beginning to get a map that has a reasonable level of, of fidelity and, um, and it can be used. And so to make things really concrete, like people often ask me as a guy who wrote a book on chatter has been studying this his whole life and is a purported expert. My wife and kids might disagree with that characterization, but like people, have you ever experienced chatter? Of course I experienced chatter at times. I'm a human. What I've gotten really good at though, is the moment I, I sniff it coming, I use a couple of tools and they really help rein it in, curtail it so it doesn't mushroom into something that can be really debilitating. And I can do that because I have the map. And so one, one reason for writing this book was to really share that understanding, that map of how to manage this important facet of our experience with, with the world or, or whoever is willing to read the book. Well, and that's what I love about it as well, because you've taken what are decades of experience, lots of seven, eight, nine syllable words, a lot of brain science, all of that good stuff, and you've made it consumable and actionable in such a relevant way. Two of the phrases that that really stuck out for me, and, and again, sensitive to some of the times that we're going through right now, and non-political, this is not a political discussion whatsoever, but two of the phrases were uh, that stuck out to me were the co-rumination trap, as yeah. well as tend and befriend. Because you you don't those two phrases the co rumination trap, what yeah. might be in in layman's terms you know called a bitch session, uh, back in the day. Yeah. But it's very it's different. It's there's funny funny enough I I, try, I tried that phrase that it didn't go over it very well. It don't with the, work. The <laughs> no no well leave it to me to bring the heat to this conversation in so far as that's concerned. But but it goes beyond that. So can you can you talk a little bit about the co rumination trap? and what that can do to people and actually where the genesis is, because I think it's one of those things where all of us, if you hear that and you understand what's happening when you're with a couple of friends or a group, or you're in a little online community or whatever the case may be, 
you're going to be able to quickly spot it and identify it and go, aha, <laughs> I know what's happening yeah. here now, instead of being swept away in the moment. And this is, this is a bit of science that um, like I personally have found so useful in my own life, both in the sense of how it influences who I seek out to help me when I'm struggling with something, and also how I provide help to others when they come to me. So co-rumination. So what we're talking about here is, so when you find yourself consumed with chatter, you're worrying or ruminating about something, which, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, mm -hmm. liberal or conservative, like we all do it at times, right? So these are universal mm -hmm. issues. When that happens, a lot of research shows that people are intensely motivated to share their emotions with others, to talk about them. There are a couple of exceptions to this rule. Um, so we tend not to want to talk about experiences of shame and embarrassment or, or really significant traumas where we sometimes try to avoid talking about that. But for everything else, anxiety and depression and anger, we are very motivated to share. And that's true of both men and women, actually. There's a stereotype that men like to just keep it all bottled up inside. Women like to just talk, talk, talk. The, the data don't support that. So both men and women like to share. All right. So, well, you find someone to talk to. So what do you say, right? There's a lot of ways to talk about our negative experiences. And one message that we've gotten from our culture, our, our you know, our the, the news, our, our parents, our friends over the years is that it's really important to vent your emotions. When you're upset, just get it out. Find someone to just unload to. The research shows that venting in that way, that can be really good for strengthening the friendship bonds between two people. So if I know that you and I now, we connect over Big Ten football and other, other the, the, the glories of the Midwest, I can call you up and I know you're willing to listen to me. It feels really good to know that there's someone out there who cares enough about me that they're willing to take the time to empathically connect and validate how I feel. But... If all we do is talk about what happened to me and how awful I felt and you validate, oh my God, even I can't believe that son of a bleep said that. And we, we engage in, in what we call in technical terms, this co-rumination session where we're ruminating together about this problem. I feel really great about our friendship, but I leave that conversation just as upset, sometimes even more upset as when I started talking to you because all those negative feelings are just bubbled up to the forefront. What the best conversations do when it comes to helping us manage our chatter is they help us do two things. First, they do help us. We, we do have to share what we're feeling to a certain degree. Like if I'm coming to you for support, it's important that you understand what I'm going through and validate you know, my experience. But at a certain point in the conversation, what you ideally want to do is help me take a step back and see that bigger picture. You want to try to help me reframe that experience in a way that ultimately lets me resolve it and move on with my life, right? Because if I don't resolve the experience, it's going to keep on bubbling up to bother me. And that's, that's the signature to providing really good chatter support. It's that two-step process of first validating and listening, and then at the appropriate time, helping that other person reframe the event. So maybe you ask them to, hey, so did you ever think about it this way? Or I've dealt with something similar. Here's what I did. Knowing about how this works, I think can be really empowering for people because on the one hand, if you're the person experiencing chatter, you can think to yourself, so who in my life is really good at not just getting me to vent, but they're also really helpful at giving me that big picture perspective. There are some people in my life who I love dearly. They love me. I don't talk to them about my chatter because all they do is rev me up. There are mm -hmm. other people in my life who they don't, they're never going to empathically connect with me. All they do is they immediately start giving me advice and it's, it's patronizing. I, I don't want to hear that. But then there's a sweet spot. There are a couple of people who are really good at doing this and they're like three people for personal issues and four for professional. And I think about these people as my own like personal board of, of advisors you know, if you think about, I, I, you know, I use that, that metaphor in the book, it's borderline cheesy, but I think it's actually really appropriate because if you think about what does a board of advisors do for a company, 
Like the board of advisors are trusted individuals, wise people who you consult during times of stress to help steer you through those problems. And almost every successful company that I know of has a board. And those board meetings are really important. I think we could all benefit from having our own board to help us help steer us through our, the, our own our own difficulties. So that's how you can use the, this this science for yourself. You can also use it to be a better chatter advisor to others. So when other people come to you with a problem, hear them out, but at the appropriate time, try to cue them to go abroad. And if you don't know when that appropriate time is, right, there's an art to doing this. You, you can you can ask someone. Like sometimes. If my wife comes to me with with an issue, I'll 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 listen. I'll, hey, can I offer you a bit of advice? And sometimes she'll say yes, please. That's why I'm talking to you. Other times I say no, just listen. I need to keep going. All right, well let's keep going. And and both are fine. So so that's where the science can be a guide. Do you have a couple of magical phrases that you use with people, or is there a mantra? Like I will on occasion, and I think some of this actually goes back to. I'm going to go back to what you you kind of started off with earlier about this, that, that we've, we've developed into this period of time, the last, I don't know, let's say 10, 20 years of, you hear so much out there, people saying, just be authentic, just be your authentic self. But there's a whole swath of people that have taken the be authentic to having permission to be a jack wagon. That that means you just spew out. I mean, Facebook baits you into this with the, how are you feeling today, right? And people are like, oh, I'm angry or whatever. French onion soup yeah. at lunch. What, what's on your mind? What's on your mind, yeah. right? And and yet I try to share even with my kids or with people that I coach or the, the exceptional leaders that I've worked with all understand that there's a nuance and there's a difference between being, being authentic and oversharing and understanding that when you are in a position of responsibility, accountability, uh, maybe even public view, that is not the venue that you get to spout whatever's on your mind. So how do you, how do you encourage people that are having these either micro conversations, one-on-one um, -on -one or one with a team or they're leading a team to lead by example and say, use the have you considered or, okay, yes, this is a bad situation. What's next? Or yes. And like, do you have a set of go-to phrases that facilitates people flipping the script and saying, I've acknowledged where we yeah. are. It's a bad situation. What next solution, right? Always being, I've heard you. I empathize. Yes. And let's move to solution. What, what are your go-to magic phrases for that? Not life hacks, but go-to yeah. phrases. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. You know, I'm reminded with when growing up with my dad, we had this magic phrase of what's the colonel? You know, the colonel was not a, a, a character, you know, in the military. It was mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the colonel of truth in his right language. But that was a buzzword for us. The moment he said that, that was a cue to stop spinning and go inside. Um, Love that. I, you know, Love I think that. that there's a lot of a lot of language messaging that comes out of the book that speaks to this issue. So one of the things I hope to do with the book chatter was provide people for a with a vocabulary for talking about these inner experiences, right? Like, what does it even mean? Like the inner voice. You used the phrase "woohoo" before. I think you know, inner voice is mostly talked about in New Age contexts. Mm -hmm. You know, with crystals and aromatherapy. In fact. We all have an inner voice. You know, when you want to get technical and scientific, we could go there. What we're talking about is silent verbal processing, right? We're using language silently. And so with the book, I tried to give people a vocabulary for talking about and thinking about, well, what is this inner voice? Why do we have one? What functions does it serve? And so chatter is the first buzzword, right? Like chatter is the negative side of the inner voice when you're stuck with rumination and worry. Co-rumination, as you mentioned before, that's another buzzword. So what will often happen in conversations is I'll notice that this is true of both myself and I'm the one experiencing the chatter, but also when I'm on the other side, when I'm giving advice, we'll say, oh, we're co-ruminating. There'll be like, sometimes you get so caught up in things that you just start talking. Wait a second. I'm co-ruminating. Let's go broad. Going broad. That's another one. Another phrase to like, let's step back, see that bigger picture, adopt that fly on the wall perspective that can be so incredibly useful for working through our experiences. So I would say that co-rumination, chatter, distance, fly on the wall, those are usually cues to say, okay, well, how can we 
approach this more constructively. Right. That's where I think, and coming from my background, one of the phrases, go-to phrases for us was always, uh, okay, let's bring it back up to 35,000 foot level. Love like, that. Right. Like, okay, let's just, let's just take a hot second here. Take a breath. Yeah. Let's bring it yeah. back up. Like what's, yeah. and even from a framework or a mental model or a tool perspective, we also know that we're going to be debriefing, right? We're going to be look intentionally looking back or looking at what's working and what's not so that it doesn't just devolve into a gripe session for the sake of getting to a place that's more valuable than where we are today. So, you know, those ideas of, um, you know, it's not about who's right, but what's right. That's not a fluffy term. It's a way of thinking that is continually working to reorient you on being solutions oriented so that you, because we know this is going to happen. We know we are going to be task overloaded. We know there's going to be too much data, too much information, sometimes too much stress. And if we don't have a way or a framework to manage that, it comes at great risk to ourselves, to others, you know, to successful mission completion, all, all of those things. And what I find uh, just really appealing about chatter and the ideas that you've presented and even how you present them is that they're applicable to everybody, whether you're, uh, you know, an executive with, with 35 years of tenure or honest to Pete, if you have third graders that are going back to school now, now I know you have kids. I've got I've got four kids. I've got uh, two that have just graduated from college with a master's and a college degree. Another that's just starting college this week, and now mm -hmm. my youngest daughter is starting uh, is starting high school. But those middle school years feel like they are very very close. Uh, objects in the mirror may be too closer or maybe closer than they appear to me. Right, like. Right that that's a tough time. And as we around the world and globally in, in so many areas right now are heading back to school, some kids have already gone back to school. Others, you know, still have, have yet to come. We have so many people that are going back after months or maybe a year or a year and a half of experiencing. And again, at different levels, a lot of loneliness, a lot of isolation. Uh, we have seen it in the corporate space where working from home has worked brilliantly and beautifully for some other people have found themselves um, operating behind the keyboard trying to balance and negotiate with their internal demons right the work from home am i good enough am i valuable enough how will people know what i'm doing what are what are some of the tools dr cross that you are sharing with both kids and adults who tend to be ruminators who tend to overthink or who worry and they effectively do have a lot to worry about, but whose chatter for the last 18 months has demolished their sense of self, their sense of potential. And I know this is such a loaded, a loaded last minute that I've just gone on here, but their, their sense of possibility and even who they are, because this has been their normal now for the last, you know, the last 18 months, what, what do we do? What, what do you, what do you, what do you do? What are some of the tools right out of the gate? Yeah. So let me, so, I know that's so, loaded. No, it's a great question. I think, you know, as I've, I've mentioned, um, in some other interviews, I think we're living through the, the chatter event of the century. And mm. I don't mean like this current century, I mean like the last hundred years, you know, it's the perfect cocktail of uncertainty and, 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 and lack of controllability that really just acts as jet fuel for this experience of chatter, and it can be truly debilitating. And we know that levels of chatter in the form of anxiety and depression have skyrocketed uh, among many different segments of the population. So, so it's all of which is to say, it, it's a good time to use some of these tools. And the good news is that there are lots of tools that, that can be used. So I like to, to break this down, give people a framework for thinking about how to use these tools, where the tools are, where you can find them. Um, there's no single tool that works for all people in all situations. What we've learned over the years is that we have evolved to possess many different kinds of tools. I talk about 26 different tools in my book and different tools work for different people in different situations. And there is a process of figuring out, hey, what are the unique set of tools that work best for me? So 
there's some tools there. These are things you could do on your own, small shifts in the way we think about our circumstances that can make us feel better. Then there are people tools. And we've talked a little bit about that, like ways of talking to other people in particular ways, not the ones that lead to co-rumination that can help us feel better. And then there are environmental tools, tools we could find in our surroundings. And so to give a couple of examples from each bucket or, or some of my favorites, first thing I do when I experience chatter or when I sense it coming is I'll, I'll, I'll use a linguistic tool. It's called distance self-talk. I'll try to coach myself through the situation. Like I'd give advice to someone else and I'll use language to help me do it. I'll actually use my own name and the second person pronoun you. So come on, Ethan, how are you going to manage the situation? We know from lots and lots of work that people are much better at giving advice to others than we are taking our own advice, right? Like do as I say, not as I do. When we have some mental space from the experience, it's a whole lot easier for us to think objectively. When I give talks on, on this on this work, I often ask people, hey, have you ever been in a situation where a friend or a loved one comes to you with a problem? They are spinning, ruminating, chatter, chatter, chatter. They don't know what to do. They present the problem to you and it's really easy for you to give them advice. And consistently, like my audiences, and sometimes they're pretty hostile audiences, I should say, like they nod affirmatively, like, oh yeah, it's, it's, that is a truism. When we've got some space from the experience, when we're at 35,000 feet, we could think about that bigger picture better. What we've learned that I think is fascinating is that language provides us a tool to really efficiently get some distance, right? When do we use names or, or pronouns like you? We use those parts of speech when we think about and refer to other people. And so what, what happens is when you use your own name to coach yourself through a problem, it basically automatically shifts your perspective. It activates circuitry in the brain that is used to think about others rather than the self. And that in turn makes it a whole lot easier for people to come up with wise, emotionally intelligent solutions for the problems they're experiencing. So first thing I do when I'm experiencing chatter is, all right, Ethan, how are you going to handle this situation? Here's what you're going to do. And sometimes when I follow that that script, and I, and I do this, I should I should give the caveat. I do this silently in my head. All the, the, the studies we've done have asked people to do it silently. I wouldn't recommend walking down like a city street, right. talking to yeah. yourself out loud. You know, yeah, you could do it in the privacy of your own home, um, but do it silently. I come up with a script. I'm like coaching myself through the situation rather than being consumed by threat like oh my god how am i going to do this here's what you're going to do you're going to yeah. you're going to kill it and so so that's one tool i use and and that's a tool you could use with kids as well so it's fascinating as you as you're talking about that i'm thinking and even though i've already read your book and i don't know why it didn't it didn't cross my mind when i when i was reading it the first time but even hearing you say that because i read it and i'm like yeah i don't know self-talk that's not like that's not totally my jam like i'm not like hey carrie you should do this like it's just, I know there are people who do that. I'm not one of them. However, I think I come at it from a slightly different way and that I do do it. It's just not the way you do it or what the way that works for some people. So yeah. what do I mean by that? Like for us, even in, in the aviation world, when we're going out with a flight of four, we don't say, hey, this this lineup's going to be Jeff Smith, Molly Hempel, um, you know, Luca Stell and whoever. Right. So we don't give names. It's dash one, dash two, dash three, dash four. Right. Why are we doing that? We've already depersonalized it. What are we doing in the debrief when we're thinking through or we're looking at the goods and others, the things that worked and the things that didn't work? We're not calling people out by name. We will call ourselves out, but we're like dash one did this, dash two did. And so we're using, we're depersonalizing it because yeah. we immediately want it to be not that there's not accountability or personal accountability. We are solutions oriented. So we are looking for the, you know, dash one, what were the options? Dash two, what are we missing? Right? So it's that thread of curiosity that's solutions oriented to bring you up and out of the chaos and stem the chatter, the ruminating, exactly. the overthinking that is 100% going to crush your performance. It just will. So this is already built into your practice that I would argue that is a form of distant self-talk, right? Yes. So some people okay. use their name, other people use a second person pronoun you, 
Other people use nicknames. So sometimes before like a high, like if I've got a high stress performance I've got to do, I'll, I'll refer to myself using my, my high school wrestling team nickname, right? Like I'll coach myself through, all right, here's what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. So we're just trying to remove the sense of personalization to a small degree. And I think you said something really important in talking about the, the debriefs that you do. You still know who everyone is. When you talk about Dash 30, if, if that's you, and pardon if I'm getting the, the call sign wrong, if you talk of a screw up that Dash 30 did, like you're still fully aware that it's not a positive thing, but you're able to think about it more objectively. And so what we're doing with a lot of these different tools, we're not taking negative situations and making them positive, like, mm -hmm. you know, like nothing mm -hmm. bad happened. What we're doing is we're taking the edge off to allow us to engage with these problems in as to use the language used in a solution focused way that lets us move on with our lives. That's what we want to do, right? And that's what these, these different linguistic shifts and other tools can help us do. Um, so yeah, I think you are using distant self-talk, just a slightly different manifestation of it. Right, right. It's fascinating. And it's, it's interesting to me as well that, and again, I think about, uh, the the tumult that we're going through right now and the uncertainty is as you know whatever we've got supply chain issues work issues work from home issues kids in school all of that that um the beauty and the accessibility of this information is you don't have to pick every tool right i remember years ago uh somebody one of my mentors when when i was writing my first book said your whole book every word doesn't need to be perfect and i'm like well yeah but you know there are going to be people who are going to criticize it and what if you know i'm not trying to write a post doctorate level theory thing that's going to impress everybody with 10 syllable words i just want it to be super actionable relatable and even entertaining if you will and he had thrown it back to me then and he was like if you if you paid somebody 26 dollars and you got one piece of information one thing that could change their life would you do it and i'm like well of course i would yeah like that's kind yeah. of a ridiculous question so i think we need to think about this and you bring again decades of experience to this and so many resources so much data so much um so much research and tools to this that one of the things i also uh, appreciated was your approach on how to manage anxiety with rituals and even placebos, right? That mm -hmm. I read a personal story really quick and it'll dovetail into one of the things that you shared was uh, when I was going through advanced jet training in flight school, I was down in South Texas. And oftentimes we'd make go down to Matamoros or down to Texas for, you know, the weekend or for just a day trip. And you get super cool things, handmade uh, blankets or, or glassware. And one of the things that I grabbed then was a little set of worry dolls and a mm, worry doll. Yes. And a worry doll barrette. And it's, you know, they're little one centimeter, little worry dolls. And the, the woman that I bought them from explained it to me and, and, in rough English, what it meant. And I'm like, I will take a handful. <laughs> right. Um, I've never heard of them. I'm from Wisconsin. I don't know what worry dolls are, but if they have any of the yeah. magical powers that she seemed to think they have, I'm just going to go on blind faith that they do. And ironically enough, one of my daughters uh, just found that barrette in an old jewelry box of mine about a month ago. And she has just moved. She's starting a new career. And she was like, Can I bring this with me? And I was like, Absolutely, you can. So, that sets you up for how do you explain or how do you share the value in leveraging placebos or rituals as tools for success to overcome that negative chatter, that rumination that's going on in our heads right now? Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I, I think I mentioned an anecdote in the book, actually, where my wife and I were on an anniversary trip to Mexico. We visited this little Puebla and they also sold worry dolls and I brought a couple back. What a wonderful invention that those South American cultures had, uh, have given us. Um, so first things first, just big picture again, we've got this massive toolbox of, of things we can do to manage our chatter. Science has done a pretty good job at identifying the individual tools. What we don't yet know is how they come together for different people. Once you finish the book, 
here's the opportunity to start doing some experiments in, on your, in your own life to figure out, hey, what are the combinations that work best for me? Because I can guarantee you that the four tools that work best for me are going to be a little bit different from the six tools that work really well for you. And so I think that's a, that's, that's a, a process that people have to work through. And the good news is that these tools are complicated in the sense of the science that went into their discovery, but they're really easy to try out. They're simple. I mean, use your yes. name. If it doesn't, don't use it. Move but, on. Um, move on. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. so placebos and rituals, I, I think this science is fascinating. So essentially what we've learned over, over quite a few years of research now is that if you believe something is going to make you feel better, when it comes to chatter, it will often have that effect. There are study after study have shown that like if I give you a, a pill, a sugar pill, nothing in the pill at all that can possibly affect your mood or your emotions. But if I tell you, hey, take this pill, you're going to feel less depressed, less anxious. If you believe me, then you will actually feel that way, right? We call that the placebo effect. And it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, people have been benefiting from this placebo effect financially for a very long time, right? Touting new treatments that they say are going to help people. Hey, if you rub this, you know, Shambhala cream on you, you're gonna, you know, uh, live 17 years longer and feel better. And, you know, and there may be some benefit that comes from rubbing that innocuous cream on yourself. No offense, by the way, to the Shambhala community just came up, but you will feel better as a function of that, but not because it's anything to do with the cream, because you believe something and having that belief is activating a chain of neurochemical reactions that are bringing that belief to fruition in your bodies, right? So there are limits to how this placebo affects the extent to which it can help us. It's not going to cure cancer. It's not going to uh, eradicate all forms of mental illness. But we do know for things like moderate and mild and moderate forms of anxiety and depression, uh, sleep problems, headaches, these placebos can have a benefit. And so you can capitalize on this in your life. And to go back to the kids um, example, so my, my oldest daughter plays soccer. And during the spring, there was one of her teammates was really anxious about playing goalie because she felt bad. She didn't want the other team to score on her. And she was, you know, put her in goal or said, hey, you're going to go in goal. She started getting so nervous, anxiety, tears. And what I did is placebo effect. So I, I went to my daughter and I took her, she had these like rubber bands. What's there's a technical name? Scrunchie? I don't scrunchies? know. Scrunchies? Ties. Sure. Some <laughs> scrunchies. Two scrunchies in her hair. And I took them like, these are the goalie magic bracelets. And if you wear these and you think they're going to help you, they will. So I wasn't lying to her. I actually said like, hey, just these are going to help you. Uh, if you believe they will, they will. And lo and behold, that gave her the boost to go in the in the in the goal and not be upset. And then we had this tradition that emerged, a ritual, where different whoever played goal took the magic soccer bracelets. And you know, we didn't we didn't actually win the the league, but at least the girls weren't crying when they were playing goalie. So that's that's one example, right? Like we often think to ourselves, like crystals and lucky charms. I don't think there's any medicinal features embedded in those substances, but if they help you harness your belief to help you believe that you're going to experience less chatter, then I say go with it. Rituals are, are another practice. I, I consider them a separate tool that are also really useful for managing chatter. Rituals, I, I call them this, they're an ancient tool that we have that have stood the test of time. If you think about like, when do our cultures give us rituals to practice? Like oftentimes they have to do with stress, like cultures across the world, we have rituals for, you know, what to do when someone dies or at the other end of the life cycle, when people, when kids are born, which is also a stressful time. I would imagine in your, in your profession, right? Like there are probably rituals that pilots engage in before, before they take off or go on a mission or before, you know, when they land. Fair, fair assumption to make? Absolutely. And I think it's, it's interesting because it's those rituals and whether you're looking at uh, normal people, fighter pilots, professional athletes, people at all performance ends of the spectrum or even experience, what you're trying to build into that ritual is, a, is a, uh, an ability to tamp down 
that fear or the uncertainty and a way, I think it's a way to assert control and, and that That's feeling, it. right? That belief of control and certainty that even in this time of overwhelming grief and distress, there's something that we can control. I call it your span of control. And yeah. you've, you've worked with professional athletes as well. Do you have any examples or somebody that you worked with who developed a really successful ritual, but then the habit pattern was broken and uh, chaos kind of takes over and they had to get back on path or you had to, you know, the goal, I, th I would think the goal is that, yes, you have these rituals and you know that they can get disrupted. So then you have to go to your other tools in the toolbox, right? Yeah. Well, so, so let me, you know, so yes, and I'm going to give you a great example of that. So the way that I think about a ritual is a ritual is a rigid, structured sequence of behaviors that has some meaning to it. It does, the science suggests it doesn't actually matter what the ritual is, as long as it is your ritual and it's meaningful to you. So when I say rigid and structured, you do the same things every single time. So before I give a, a presentation, I'll take three breaths, you know, repeat a phrase in my head, a, a type of mantra involving my high school wrestling nickname. And then I'll pound my, my fist into my hand twice and then I go. And I do that every single time before I give a talk and it calms me. One of the ways that these rituals work is, is by giving us, as you describe, the sense of control. When we're experiencing chatter, we often feel like we don't have control. So when you can do something that is under your control, that compensates for that for that feeling of, of not having control of our circumstances. And it makes us feel better. This is also why so many people report cleaning and organizing when they're, when they're stressed out, right? Like you can, I mean, I even did this. And when I was writing my book and it was oh, yeah. you know, a little stressful yeah. at times, right? Like usually there's, the office is a total mess. There's a trail of clothing throughout the house. But when I'm, when I'm in chatter mode, I start putting everything away because I can do that. It's under my control. So one of my favorite examples of, of rituals and how they play out, I was on a panel with a professional, um, a major league baseball pitcher, and he was a relief pitcher. And what's interesting about being a relief pitcher is there are many different situations in which you can be called into action. Like in some circumstances, you're, you, you know... You're going to be pitching two innings from now. And so you've got two innings to get ready. In other instances, it's you've got two batters and you know you're going to be brought in to pitch to this particular batter. In other instances, the, the phone picks up, like the, the coach ca calls the bullpen and you just have to go on. And so what this pitcher had done is he had three different types of rituals for each of those different circumstances. He had the long ritual, the medium ritual, and the very, very quick one. And, and so he didn't have to think about it. He just knew when I'm in situation A, I use this ritual. When I'm in situation C, I use this one. And that really helped calm his nerves. The other thing you can do is, as you said, you could switch to other tools. We, we haven't talked about, we've talked about like three or four. There's a boatload of other ones. You could bring the other ones into your life or you can even combine them. You can, you can put different tools together. And one of my favorite recent examples of this comes from my daughter. You know, I talk to my daughter a lot about, my daughters a lot about these ideas. Um, they're, um, you know, seven and 11, and, and, and there's, there are opportunities now for chatter with them, elementary, middle mm -hmm. school, sports. And a lot of the times I talk to them, they just kind of like roll their eyes and they're like, ah, you're so boring. That's one of my, you know. Other times they, they engage, but but I encourage parents to talk to their kids about this stuff in a friendly way because I, even if they're not listening, they are listening. It's getting in there, right? It's penetrating their minds. And, and my, um, my daughter took up diving this year, my oldest um, daughter. And diving is actually a really interesting sport when it comes to chatter because you get a lot of time alone with your thoughts, right? When you're waiting to get on the board got to wait a long time. And when you're on the board, you've got these elaborate routines you want to just hit. It's kind of gym, like gymnastics. And, and we've just seen with Simone Biles just mm -hmm. how powerful chatter can be in those contexts. And so we were talking and I was like, well, what do you, what do, you do when you're waiting? She's like, well, I developed a little ritual. So the first thing I do is I say, Maya, you got this. So distant self-talk. 
and then she does a, a, a couple of breaths and then she says another thing and then she dives and she's like, I do that those same three things every time and it just works. And so, so that was really gratifying at a personal level that A, I'm not a total dud of a parent yeah. that some of the things I say I listen to, <laughs> but B, she, she had, she had integrated them into mm-hmm. her life in a way that really made sense for her. And so that was really neat. And so I think, you know, the more we talk about these things with our kids, with our colleagues, with our friends, the more we can help spread this knowledge to help others. When you look at that and when you're trying to, whether it's it's sharing, you know, magical scrunchies with, with another girl on the soccer field, or you're looking at your professional portfolio, if you will, what role does failure really have in that journey? You know, was there a time where you made a decision or, or a mistake that you were like, yeah, that was that was a pretty big deal. What kept you moving forward through that failure? Uh, plenty of failures. They seem they seem to happen to me on a daily basis. Um, so I've always I've always you know I've never thought that I do things perfectly, and I think there's always an opportunity to learn from failures and strive to be better. And I think having that mindset has been very helpful. As has in general, I tend to have a, a an optimistic orientation that if things haven't worked out, they can the next time. Inevitably, they they don't always work out, but when they don't work out, I can quickly recalibrate and then move forward. And so really, um, the ability to manage chatter has been, I think, an essential tool for me because, Mm -hmm. look, I don't like failing. Um, I don't know many people who do, and I like shooting for, you know, kind of high-impact success but it doesn't always happen and that's okay. Uh, when it doesn't happen, I try to figure out why it didn't and we try again. And that's been a very healthy, productive mindset for me. Because do either of your kids exhibit without naming names at all? Cause that could be devastating. Do they exhibit more of a perfectionist tendency that you're like, Oh, we're going to have our work cut out with this one a little bit where you're going to have to keep reminding, reinstilling, sharing those tools. There are manifestations in different domains. Like in some ways, I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I often like to think of of tightening or loosening, right? And so there are some things like where I'm trying to loosen. Well, no, it doesn't have to be perfect. Your your you know your bedroom doesn't have to be perfectly clean. Hey, what happens if I just throw a piece of paper on the floor? And you know, oh my god, you no, daddy, that can't be. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. So like, but then when it comes to an essay. I'm like, did you read this before you gave it to me to look at? Why don't you read it first, see if there's any typos you can, and then show it to me. And so, um, so I think with 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 many of us, it's not that we're chatter or perfectionistic across the board, right? Where there are there are domains mm-hmm. in which we be very chatter prone, but then other domains in which we're not. And I think we. In, in those instances, like if you have no concerns, like that's not always a good thing. You do want to have some vigilance. And in other concerns, maybe you're hypervigilant too much and there you want to bring it down. And so I feel like right. one important message I think to take away from the book and this work is that emotions in small doses are negative emotions are very, very useful. Like small doses of anxiety, anger, sadness they serve a function. We don't want to rid ourselves of, of those negative emotions. Like when I experience some anxiety, that's, that's telling me, Hey, attend, focus on this, prepare, make sure you've got your bleep together so that Mm -hmm. you do excel. When I don't experience any anxiety before an engagement, I don't think those engagements go as well is when I have those butterflies in my stomach and there's data to support that. So it's not about eliminating those negative negative states. Like there are some times where I want to be perfect and that's, you know, you don't want to take right. that to an extreme, but in some instances we do want that perfection. And it's a question of how do you have that goal? And if you don't make it, it's okay, but that that's what we're shooting for. 
Right. Isn't, isn't that funny in, in this day and age of even going back to social media or, you know, and I've talked about it before, but kind of the inspirational, you know, woohoo all the time of you want stress-free seven steps to being stress-free and, you know, here's your life hack to make everything awesome and reduce all the stress in your life. And I'm like, so, so again, very myopically for me, I'm like, no, no, stresses actually can be a really good thing, right? The hair standing up on the back of your neck sometimes can be a really yeah. good thing. It protects you and some stress is good. It can tell you to, to take really good action. It can motivate you. It's good for your system, but it's that chronic overwhelming stress or, or that, that chronic ruminating, uh, or overthinking yes. that can just completely not only, you know, have catastrophic health effects, but it can kill your ability to function. So, I, I love with even, again, the language that you've shared, the research that you've shared in Chatter, that it gives you those tools to be flexible enough to figure out a way that works best for you to filter out the unnecessary. Not that you're ignoring it, you've acknowledged it, you've put it where it belongs, and you figure out that way to move forward. So have you had a struggle at all in the last year and a half, or even, you know, you have this great professorship at, at the university of Michigan, you're running a lab, you've got a family. How do you work with your team and your family, your lab to really overcome or ward off burnout in a world that is pushing back right now that all of us, because of the brain science, you know, more than I do, our brains lock on and grab a hold of the negativity like 99 times more than it does to the positive bits. So how, yeah. how do you in yes. aggregate outside of giving everybody, okay, let's go back to chapter seven and chatter, right? Let's, let's talk <laughs> about this again, where you're just like, oh, okay. I actually wrote a book about this. Like, and here we right. are struggling with the stuff I've actually right. studied and, and lived for the last 20 years, but it's real. It affects all of us. How do you, how do you keep it in check? How do you, what's your go-to, do you have a personal mantra? which you probably can't share or um, I, mine is span I, of control. I have cocktails of tools I use, right? That, and I'm pretty deliberate about using them. So when it, mm -hmm. for the past 18 months or so, if I find myself, you know, um, succumbing to chatter or that's a possibility, I'll do the distant self-talk coach. All right, Ethan, what would, what would you say your best friend? I mean, it, it is mind boggling actually to me. When you ask people like when they're stuck in chatter, what they're actually thinking, what are the thoughts streaming through your head when you are when you're immersed in a fit of chatter? People often don't even want to share what's what they're thinking mm -hmm. you because they're embarrassed about what they're thinking. They're like, would you ever say that to your best friend or your loved one? And inevitably, people say no. So you know, all right, Ethan, try to relate to yourself. Give myself advice like I would one of my best buddies. I'll use something called temporal distancing or mental time travel. I'll try to really go to that 35,000 feet, but I'll do it in terms of time. I'll think, how am I going to feel about this thing that's bugging me a month from now or a year from now, right? How am I going to feel about COVID a year from now when, you know, the third booster is in effect and my kids are vaccinated? Um, I'll go back in time. How, you know, how do I feel now? But well, let me think about the pandemic of 1918. I think it was 50 million people died right back then. A whole lot worse than it is right now. No takeout back then, right? Like things are bad now, but they could be much worse, right? So I'll do that to help give myself some perspective. I'll go for a walk in nature. The, the restorative effects of green space mm -hmm. exposure on the mm -hmm. brain and chatter are really powerful. So I'll do that. And I've got a really good network of advisors that I've carefully curated and I've worked hard to have this board of advisors for me in place. And so I'll tap into them when I need them. And so nature, board of advisors, distant self-talk, mental time travel, and, and I have a couple of rituals, right? Like, so every weekend I will, I'll go to the I'll exercise, go to the farmer's market, make breakfast for my kids. Like that gives real meaning. And so I'm using tools to help myself and I'm, I'm also trying to share those tools with others. And so uh, the most immediate way I could do that with, with others is to help be a chatter advisor to them when they call me, but also reminding them, you know, of, of the other kinds of tools that are out there. And, um, and that's really, you know, like the last 18 months suck, basically. I'd much prefer to be doing things very differently, but I'm mindful that 
things have gotten better and um, and I think they will continue to get better. And so these tools have kind of like just helped helped usher me through that process. I love it. Yeah, I think it's so. Again, I I appreciate all of the all of the research and the different uh, methodologies and the stories and and that there is literally something for everyone. If I I can't even imagine, and this is going to get super granular, but the conversations that you must have had with your publisher, or even from a book proposal perspective or anything, when people would say, "Well, who is this for?" and I don't know how you would not lead with every time this is for everybody because they want to know, yeah, yeah. But who is, I get that. Everybody says that, but who is this for? No, it's a universal. It's universal. It's just, oh my gosh. I mean, I'm already, you know, have ordered my stack that I'm going to share with. I've got about a top group of 20 people that I'm, I'm already know the pages. I've taken notes on my phone that I'm going to, I've got a couple of sticky pages. Like I'm like, Ooh, this person needs to see this because it can be that go-to phrase, right? Tendon befriend or whatever it is that in that moment, if you give somebody language to put around what it is they're experiencing or thinking or feeling, it fundamentally changes the way they behave and what's possible for them. It's a huge, it's a huge performance accelerator on across the board for every metric. So yeah, I'm a super fan. I think it's awesome. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our time and I know you've got uh, lots going on in your neck of the woods. Would would you be game for doing uh, just five quick rapid fire questions that are just kind of fun? Yeah. I would be happy to, um, and, okay. and, I, and I really thank thank you for all that 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 support. I think we, we really see eye, eye to eye on so many of these issues. I know you you already shared that you spend a lot of time outside. That that's a great coping mechanism for you. What is your go to music you listen to when you work out? Oh, this is embarrassing. Um, you know, lots of lots of lots of eighties rock, um, and um, probably my. Go-to songs are are Journey, Don't Stop Believing, and um, you know Rick Springfield, Jesse's Girl. Just terrible. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being honest. Hey, if this if this makes you feel better about your musical choices, I just discovered last week uh, that one of my daughters just discovered a couple of songs from John Bovey's al- John Bon Jovi's album ah. "Slippery When Wet," and I was like, Classic. "What?" I, I used to listen to that on my, you know, on my Walkman. And when it got cold and you have to shake your Walkman, she's like, what, what, what are you? And I'm like, yeah, never mind. Just listen to the whole album. <laughs> I, I like, I like her taste. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was a little surprised by that. Um, who do you think of as a mentor and what did you need to learn from them? Uh, my mentor was, was um, my, my graduate advisor, Walter Michelle um, and what I needed to learn from Walter was the importance of actually of of going that extra step to get really close to perfection. That is turning in your first draft. That's not good enough. That's good enough for for college, but not when you get to the big leagues. And when you get to the big leagues, you're in the business of striving to get it right. It doesn't mean we always make it there, but we're going for that. That's the goal. And so that was really useful uh, learning that from him. It's really helped me. I'm never paralyzed by perfectionism and it's really not, I understand that that is not always attainable, but I'm striving for the best, if that makes sense. Well, shout out to Walter and all the other teachers with their red pens who are doing that with the intent to help you get better and improve, not something to have somebody kick their personal defenses up on. I love that. Exactly. Exactly. I think, Yeah. yeah, exactly. What's the biggest misperception of you? Biggest misperception that I never experienced chatter. Mm. I can experience it just like just like anyone else, um, but but I know some yeah. tools to help with it. That's fantastic. Who plays you in a movie? Hmm. Um, Mark Wahlberg. Oh, that's a good one. And he's a he's an he's East a- Coast guy too, so he he'll yeah. probably get the uh, probably get the dialect right. Great. Yeah. Um, So we have $100, a full tank of gas, and the day off. Where are we going? New York City. Okay. Good one. Well, Dr. Cross, I really appreciate your time today. If people want to get in touch with you, um, maybe more information about your research, 
booking you to speak, whatever the case may be, or simply follow you on your journey, where can they find you? And they could go to my website, ethancross with a K.com, and um, they could get lots of, of links there to social media and their downloads. Um, take a quiz to see how, how well you know your inner voice as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. I know you've got a really busy schedule, but it's been a pleasure having you on today. It is, you know, this idea of chatter and how we manage that is such a critical life skill, I think, to understand how we harness those conversations we have with ourselves, really at all levels, all age groups, in order to not just achieve our goals or whatever success looks like for you at this point or for us on this journey, but also to do it in a healthier way uh, with a little less stress, right? We're not going to try to mitigate 100% of it, but also uh, really at the end of the day, just a lot more happiness. So I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was a wonderful conversation. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for listening this week. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation today, I'd love if you left us a review so that more fearless leaders like you can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really does make a difference. And I also love reading the reviews. And while you're at it, I'd love to hear from you personally on my social channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And of course, you can always find me at carrielorenz.com. Finally, my new book, Span of Control, is out in the world, and it's available on Amazon, iTunes, Audible, at Target, Barnes & Noble, and your favorite indie bookstore. And I'm super excited about this one. I think it's going to be extraordinarily helpful to you on a personal level. It can help your family members, your friends, and even the teams you lead or coach to really help identify their priorities, find focus, navigate obstacles, and find success even during times of chaos, uncertainty, and change. So thank you for sharing your time with me today. I am glad you are here.